Thanks for joining us today for the Eagle Drive Baptist Church podcast with Pastor Chris Thorne. Eagle Drive is a Bible-believing New Testament Baptist Church where Jesus is preeminent and the gospel of grace is at center stage. We are devoted to connecting with God, growing together, serving others, and sharing our faith. If you would like to know more about our ministry, visit EagleDriveBaptist.com. Now, here's today's message. Ephesians chapter 4 is where we'll be tonight. So it's been about three weeks since we've been in this series. Uh, excited to jump back in. Um, as I was studying, really, I've kind of been studying throughout this whole series ahead on some things. The past couple weeks been studying concerning this passage and the future passages. And uh, with, with this book especially, uh, there's so many deep theological truths within the book of Ephesians. And one thing I, I don't want to do, as I think you guys have learned about me by now, I don't want to just rush through things. Uh, I, I want us to dig deep because in digging deep, it helps us reach out. Uh, but at the same time, I don't want to go so deep to where you're like, Pastor, I have no clue what you just said. And uh, that was just a waste of my time. But at the same time, I don't want to just give you know surface level and then skim through it quickly. So I try to find that balance. And this, this is one of those passages where I could literally spend about three hours just on verses 11 and 12 and kind of reference a lot of things back in the book of Acts and 1 Corinthians and 1 Peter and different things like that. But I'm not going to try to do all that for sake of time tonight. Uh, but we'll get what we can get through tonight. So let's go ahead and start reading in verse number one. Uh, we're going to read the first 12 verses. Remember, there's a transition. First three chapters of Ephesians are all about our what? Anybody remember? We had a whole series on it, it was like 20 weeks. Identity, thank you. I don't want to have to go back and re-preach those 20 weeks. So I'm glad someone listened to it. If you didn't, you go online and listen to those messages. All about our identity in Christ. I'm going to hit on that here in just a minute. And then as we transition into chapter 4, it's really a great transition period. Chapter 4 through 6 uh, goes from doctrine to duty. So it's more of the application of what Paul is trying to get across. And he's really trying to help us understand what it means to live out the gospel in our Christian lives. And a lot of times I've heard messages primarily more on chapter 4 through 6 than chapters 1 through 3 because of the deep theological truths. And I think it shies some preachers away from it. But as you realize that everything is inspired of God and it's very important uh, to, to dig into God's word. And really, I was talking to a friend about this today. As I started studying it, I realized just how powerful it was. And I, I hope it's been encouraging to you. I know it's been encouraging to me as well. So follow along if you would. Chapter four, verse number one. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. Remember, there's several times in chapter four through six where Paul is referencing our walk as a Christian, the duty, the application, with all lowliness and meekness and long suffering, uh, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the, uh, the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So really this first walk that he wants us to do is to walk in unity. And we've spent two or three weeks just on that, that aspect of being unified in a church and what a church that is in unity looks like. And all of us in here that have been in church in any, any, any period of time have been in a church that was ununified, that was disunified that had disunity. I was talking to a friend today on the phone that's in ministry. And a lot of times on the surface, you might look at a church and you think, man, that church is just, they're knit, they're together. But as you start digging a little bit deeper, you realize, oh, there's some skeletons. There's some, there's some issues. You think about 
people in general. On the surface, a lot of us look good, right? But we realize it's sometimes below the surface. There's issues going on, cancer, toxins, things that are eating away at our body. And that, that happens within the church. So it's very important to have a spirit of unity. And when a church is truly unified, amazing things happen. I've been a part of churches that were unified. I've been a part of churches that were disunified. And it's, it's a mess. And again, we're going to reference that here in just a minute. So let's continue on. Verse number four. There is one body and one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all, through all, and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it? <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth. He that descended in the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, uh, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So verse 11 and 12 is where our primary focus is going to be in this message tonight. But let's go ahead and pray and we'll start. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for this night. And Lord, I thank you for the rain. And God, I pray that you'd help us to be safe as we uh, travel home tonight here in a few minutes. And just be with us as we, again, just unlock your word. Uh, Lord, as I've said many times, and our church knows this is one of my favorite services of the week just because of um, the, the, the practical application of it all and, and just digging deep and uh, helping us tr truly understanding uh, what this book is talking about. So God, I pray that you'd help us tonight to unlock what we need to unlock. Give me the words to speak, the words to say. Uh, we love you so much. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Um, again, as I referenced, you know, the first three chapters are all about our identity. And I, I want to say that again quickly because it's very important to understand who you are. And in, in the past couple of weeks, was, you know, thinking a lot about this. And again, the past couple of days, especially since we back up back late Sunday night, uh, talking to some friends in ministry. And uh, I think identity is a, a struggle for many people. And what I mean is that I think a lot of Christians don't truly know who they are. And again, what I mean is that it's, it's, it's important to, yes, understand who Jesus is, that he died on the cross for our sins. And a lot of people have a surface-level Christianity. What I mean is they know what you're supposed to know. But it's more than that. And that's really why Paul is writing these letters. And as I was thinking, you know, obviously our church has experienced a great tragedy, a great loss with the loss of Carrie a couple weeks ago. And with that, the question has come to my mind, that's come to my mind before, what if everything was stripped away from you? What if everything was taken away from you? Who are you? For some people, that answer is, I'm nothing. If I lose my job, if I lose my family, if I lose all my friends and my connections, I'm nothing, then you don't understand who you are. But as the Bible clearly says, and as Paul clearly teaches us in these first three chapters, it's important to understand who you are in Christ. Because in Christ, we are everything. And I know just personally, in my own experience with not just this loss, but in loss in general, I think it's encouraged me more than anything because I think God has rooted me and anchored me and fastened me even more secure in the past several years to where when tragedy strikes, yeah, I, I sway, but I don't just break. And that's the great thing about the Christian life, isn't it? Amen. 
especially when you're deeply rooted and anchored. You think about trees, and we've talked about that in our Thrive series, you know, that the palm tree, it's meant to bend. <laughs> I mean, it bends all the way over in those storms, but most of the time it doesn't break. And that's what a Christian should be like. Yeah, the storms are going to come, and they're going to make us bend and bend and bend, but eventually that storm's going to be over. They're going to be able to stand tall. And again, so important to understand who you are, who you are in Christ. If Christ is not enough, then something else has become your God. Something else has become your sufficiency. And again, I, I say that because these are the things that I've had to work on in my life over the years. Even during the midst of tragedy, even in the midst of, of heartache and trouble and turmoil, that when I, I run from God, what I'm saying is, God, you're not enough. But when I run to God, I'm saying, God, you're everything. You're all I need. And that's, that's what I want us to understand. And if a, a church truly understands who they are in Christ, you know what's going to happen? There's going to be unity. There's not going to be disunity. There's not going to be control issues. There's not going to be all kinds of problems. Because we're going to know who we are in Christ. And that's the most important thing. Our identity is not shaped by what we have in this life, at this present time. Our identity is shaped in Christ and Christ alone. And again, I just, I can't help but think of God's goodness. And I think we're going to sing several songs about the goodness of God on Sunday. And I just, I can't help but think of God's goodness, even in the midst of tragedy. God is good. Man. And you got you to gotta realize that, that death was never part of his initial plan. His initial plan was what? Perfection. So how is God good in the midst of that? Because he's offered us a way out. He's offered us heaven, right? For those that have trusted Christ as their Savior. And, and I know I'm taking comfort in the fact that I'll see my friend, my brother, Carrie again. And that's part of God's goodness. And even, you know, my wife and I were talking about this yesterday, and I'm kind of getting off on the part that I didn't necessarily want to get off on tonight. But, you know, precious in the Lord are the death of his saints. A saint is just a Christian. It's not someone that's over 75 years old. As we've talked about in chapter 1, a, a saint is a child of God. And it's a precious thing when a child of God comes home to their heavenly father. And it's a, it's a precious thing that Carrie got to go home to his heavenly father. And, and a precious thing for us is that we get to see him again. And he's going to be waiting for us. But again, it's so important in times like this to understand who we are. And that's why Paul is just hitting this, hitting this, hitting this, hitting this. Because he wants the church at Ephesus, the Christians, to understand this because he knows tragedy is going to strike. He knows hardship is going to come. And as we get to chapter 4, as even the, the series title suggests, he wants us to be engaged, engaged in gospel ministry. And really, verses 1 through 16 is all about the marks of a healthy church. Now, I know I'm going to blow you guys away with you know, some of my amazing wisdom. I've been gone for a week and just got so much wisdom. But there's a huge difference between healthy and unhealthy. I know, I just blew you away, right? They're like, wow, pastor, it's mind-blowing. Never knew you had that kind of wisdom. Don't worry, I don't. But there's a huge difference between something that is healthy and something that is unhealthy. None of us in here want to be unhealthy. None of us are striving in our lives to, I want to be unhealthy. Anybody like that? Michael is trying. No, I'm just kidding. He's not. 
None of us are trying to be unhealthy. We want to be healthy, so we take certain measures to be healthy. And that's what Paul is referencing here in chapter 4. He's giving us the marks of a healthy church. And I briefly talked about this last time we met, so let's dig back into this. A healthy church, first of all, is marked by spiritual unity. Spiritual unity, being unified. Second thing, a healthy, a healthy church is marked by spiritual diversity. We are different, and that's okay. And then the third thing, which we're going to hit on next week, and I can't wait to hit on this, a healthy church is marked by spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity. You know, I've been thinking a lot about a healthy church especially. Let me ask this question and want some feedback, as we do from time to time on Wednesday nights. In your opinion, outside of what I just mentioned, what do you think are some criteria for what makes a church a healthy church? What are some criteria that you believe make a church a healthy church? Anyone? Do what? People that work. Workers, yeah. That's good. What else? Communication. Communication. It's very good. What else? Faithfulness. Faithfulness. That's key, right? What else? Anything else? What are some marks of a healthy church? Helping others. That's very good. Very good. What else? Come on, you guys can talk. I don't... Bible-based? Not like magazine-based or anything? Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. That's, that's important. That's important. Bible-based. It's very important. There's, there are a lot of churches that are not Bible-based, even though they have whatever. That's, that's another subject entirely. Yes. What else? Did you say something? I said Discipline, faithfulness, yeah. What else? These are good things. Anything else? What are some marks of a healthy church? Praying church. Praying church? That's very good. All right, let's flip it. What are some marks of an unhealthy church? Grouchy people. people. All right, nobody in here is grouchy, right? Well, you're not grouchy, right? Okay, not at all. I don't know why I pointed you out, but she's not grouchy at all. What are are some marks of an unhealthy church? (laughs) Under the bus ministry, it's in full force. What are some marks of an unhealthy church? Critical people. Yes. What else? Unfaithfulness. Unfaithfulness. Yeah, a lot of what we just mentioned can we talk about. What, what else? A couple more. Ungrateful people. Just keep, keep listing. That's, that, she's just, it's, it's just coming out. I think she's ready to preach this tonight as well. <laughs> uh, let's do two more. What are, what are maybe some marks of an unhealthy church? Go down. Church full of the world, yeah, a worldly church. Michael, I see that hand. He's not raising it. But. Uh, just, oh, gossip, gossip yeah, gossiping church. Uh, I was reading um, earlier today. You know, Google has everything; has all the answers for for life. You know, just in general. Um, but I was trying to find, you know, on the on the spiritual side, the the Christian side, some people of what they believe the marks of a healthy church are and signs of a healthy church. And this this one article I read was very good, taken from the book of Acts chapter two. Uh, it talked about obviously no church is perfect, and I think we understand that there is no perfect church, um, no perfect people, no perfect pastors. And if you're looking for that, you're going to be looking a long time. It's not going to happen. Um, but this person uh, proceeds to talk about 10 things, and I just want to list them very quickly, of what they believe makes a healthy church. First of all, they say, a healthy church produces new leaders. And that is key. A healthy church produces new leaders. It's not just one or two people doing everything, and we're going to hit on that tonight. It's a plurality. It's basically 
growing people, maturing people, uh, discipling people to lead someone else, and then they lead someone else, and they lead someone else, and it just keeps going on. Uh, another thing they'd say is this. I like this. A healthy church helps members crave meat, not milk. Now, that's a huge thing. Um, when I was a youth pastor especially, I realized a lot of teenagers cannot handle meat. And what I mean by that is deep theological preaching. They need milk because they're developing, they're growing, they're, they're not understanding everything about the Bible. But I've also realized it's not just for kids and teens. Some adults are like that as well. You, they just can't handle the meat of God's word. But a healthy church is a church that is craving that. That doesn't just want milk and surface level Christianity make you feel good and go your way. They want to dig deep. They want to have their toes stepped on a little bit here and there because they know it's going to help them. And I believe, you know, we have a church that is craving that, and I'm thankful for that. Uh, another thing they say is this a healthy church devotes itself to prayer. I think someone mentioned that. Prayer is important. Uh, they said a fourth thing a healthy church has members who serve with joy. Now, I've known people that serve. And I've known people that don't serve with joy. And I think you would know people like that as well. It's one thing to serve, and people are like, well, I'm serving. I have an attitude about it, but I'm serving. Well, why are you serving anyway? A healthy church is church who has members that serve with joy. Uh, fifth thing, they say a healthy church has members who resolve interpersonal conflict in a healthy way. Again, being with people, there's going to be conflict, right? There's going to be division. And a mark of a healthy church, according to this person, really, I, I agree with what they say, they're going to resolve conflict because unresolved conflict leads to what? Disunity. And how often does that happen in a church? Lori is mad at Amanda. Amanda's mad at Debbie. I'm just going on. I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We're not, okay? Calm down. Calm down. But that happens, Right? And instead of going to the person and being biblical about it, I think it's Matthew 18, talks about that. What do we do? We, we get a couple people on our side. Oh, I got this person on my side. And then we're trashing this person, and then they're trashing that person, and then all of a sudden, we've got this group and we got that group. I, again, I remember as a youth pastor, we had some problems, and it was a, it was a boy with two different girls, and that was a great situation. That was a phenomenal situation to be in, you know? Yeah, it was our favorite, yeah, you know? He liked two girls at the same time and, you know, whatever. Um, not going to stay on that. But anyway, what had happened was it created division within the youth group. And it created division within the church because this girl's family didn't like that girl's family. And that's healthy. That leads to a healthy church. No, it didn't. It, it caused a lot of problems and, and we had to confront it. But what happens so often is people, instead of trying to resolve the issue... They don't. I want to be mad. I want to be angry. I want to be bitter. Okay, that's fine. And even I, I thought about it. How many have ever been hurt? Anybody ever been hurt by someone else? Okay, we've got, we've got people in here tonight. Good. Uh, we've all been hurt by other people. Isn't it easy to hang on to things, honestly? That's the easy thing. The hard thing, the difficult thing, is to go and resolve it. But if, you, we, if we truly want to have a healthy church, you know what we're going to do? lay aside our differences, our pride, and try to resolve things. Even if the other person doesn't come and make everything's right, make everything right, it's, it's, it's freeing when you've released it, when you've given it to Jesus, when you've forgiven, 
even if they never forgive you. And that's a mark, that's a sign of a healthy church. Another thing, quickly, is this. A healthy church is made up of people, this is good, who appreciate the past but look forward to the future. And I like that. This isn't the whole message tonight, but a healthy church is made up of people who appreciate the past but look forward to the future. I've been in churches in the past that all they wanted to do was hang on to the past. Now, I love the past, and I'm thankful for the past, but unless it's the Bible... Everything else, as I've said, in a sense, is up for whatever. We can, we can change certain things, but people are like, we can't change that, that pew we've had to bless God for 48 years. It's a mark of this church. hope I don't sound like anyone in here tonight with that voice. But <laughs> honestly, it's, it's foolish things like that that we're, we're holding on to our past and that, that's okay, we should appreciate it, but we've got to look forward. And what I mean by that is people have a hard time with change, right? Anybody have a hard time with change? All of us should raise our hand because all of us do. I don't think anyone in here likes change, to be honest. And I've given my illustrations, my stories before of change. I don't like it when change happens, but change is natural. It's a part of life. And even with the church, even um, now there are certain things that do not change. Don't get me wrong. And if you know me well, hopefully you know me by after four years, there are certain things that I am not going to change. The doctrine that we preach, the Bible that we preach, is not going to change because God doesn't change. But there are other things that can change because the culture is changing. And we've got to reach our culture for Christ, right? But so many people, what happens is they get hung up on traditions, on preferences, on the past that are not biblical. And really all it's doing is promoting an unhealthy church instead of a healthy church. And I've realized this, and again, even talking to friends the past couple of days on the phone, you know, we, we've seen this in ministry. And, you know, there, there are certain churches and certain things that people have done that I'm like, eh, I don't know if I'd ever do that. And it's very easy to very, be, be very critical. But at the same time, they have to answer to God for what they're doing. I have to answer to God for what I'm doing. And me just being critical and overbearing and all that kind of stuff, is only going to promote bitterness inside of me and anger inside of me and frustration inside of me. So again, the, the past is important. Appreciate it, but hold on. Look forward to the future. Another thing quickly, healthy church is, accountable, is an accountable church. It's very important to be accountable one to another. Holding each other up. You see someone falling. You see someone in, in sin, falling into sin. You know what you should do? Ah, stinks for them. I told them. Is that what we should do? No, we should try to help them, right? You see someone literally falling into the water, you're going to try to help them, right? Rescue them. But how often do we see a brother or sister fall in their Christian life and instead of trying to pick them up, we just try to tear them down? But we have to have that accountability, holding each other up. Friend loveth at all times and a brother is born, born in adversity. We have to be able to speak the truth in love. There's some hard conversations that we have to have with each other at times, and that's why it must be done in love. A healthy church Brother Alan kind of talked about this earlier, but gives cheerfully. You know, if we're withholding things, that's not the mark of a healthy church. And it's more than just our money. First and foremost, God wants our heart. Ninth thing quickly, and then we'll get back to the message. Healthy church bears one another's burdens. That's important. Again, many of us are struggling here tonight. Over the past couple of weeks, it's, it's encouraging one another. It's lifting each other up. And then, I like this one. Again, this is not necessarily an exhaustive list. This is someone's 
uh, opinion, but a healthy church welcomes strangers. Again, I've been in churches that were not welcoming at all. Someone looked different. I don't want them in our church. That's wrong. It's wrong philosophy. It's wrong attitude to have. But again, going back to a healthy church, as we said, a healthy church promotes spiritual unity. Unity is so vital, so important. And we hit on that for two or three weeks. But then that second thing, which we're going to continue and finish that tonight, a healthy church promotes spiritual diversity. Spiritual diversity. Remember, and this is key, it's not always about looking at our differences. Anyone have anyone in your family that's different? Yeah, all of us, right? I know Michael is that. He's the different one in your family. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just got to pick on him tonight because his parents are here. Yes, he's, he's hiding back there. It's okay. Um, we love him. But we all have those people that are different. I have people in my family that are different. You have people in your family that are different. That's okay. We're all different, but the key is not focusing on how we're different. As we talked about a couple weeks ago, the key is focusing on how we're the same. How are we the same? As we talked about, what? Yeah, we're in Christ. If you're, if you're a Christian, we're all in Christ. And as we said, there's one body, one spirit, uh, one hope, if you're calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. And even you think about this, I believe in the local church, but there are people in other denominations that will be going to heaven that were tr- are truly saved. And sometimes all we're doing is criticizing and harping on how they're different than us instead of realizing how they're the same if they're truly in Christ. And on a global scale, we're not even promoting unity within the global body of Christ, let alone the local body of Christ. Remember, unity is not about selfishness. It's about oneness. It's not about sameness. It's about diversity. Every believer has diverse gifts, and that's okay, as it says. But every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Aren't you thankful that you're not like someone else? I am. Even brothers and sisters, even twins, there are differences. There are similarities, but there are differences. You know, we'll talk later about the actual spiritual gifts that are mentioned in Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians and other places like that. But every believer has been gifted. If you are a child of God, you have to understand you have been gifted. And we must make a distinction between spiritual gifts and natural abilities. They are not the same. A spiritual gift, though, is a God-given ability to serve God and other Christians in such a way that Christ is glorified and believers are edified. Our gifts are unique. Here's why. Because our personalities and our talents. Look, you might have the same spiritual gift as someone else, but it's going to look different. Because you're different. And that's okay. In a sense, it's like a fingerprint. Your fingerprint does not match anyone else in this world. It is unique. Your spiritual gift is unique for you. Again, others may have the same gift, but there's no one else. And get this. I don't have this in your notes, but just get this in your, in your minds. There's no one else that can do what you can do within the body of Christ. There is no one else that can do what you can do in the body of Christ. And that's how God made it. He gifted you. 
gifted you with grace. I got this illustration. I got to read it. It's kind of funny. Once upon a time in a local church, there were four people named everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. There was an important job to be done, and everybody was asked to do it. But everybody was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. Then somebody got angry about it because it was everybody's job. But since everybody thought that anybody could do it, nobody realized everybody wouldn't do it. It ended up that everybody blamed somebody. And nobody did the job that anybody could have done in the first place. Right about this time, a fifth person walked into the church. This person's name was confused. He looked around, saw what was happening, and never came back. (laughs) It's funny, but it's true. Everyone is encouraged to do a job, and we're all looking around. Well, I hope someone else does it. But what if we're the one that are supposed to be doing it? And that's what we're going to hit on tonight. And more importantly, next week as we kind of finish this out. Oh, just like closed out my notes. That was weird. All right, um, let's go on to the second point. Every believer has diverse responsibilities. Every believer has diverse responsibilities. Did I miss anything in the notes? Oh, I did? What did I miss? Oh, there it is. Every believer has diverse gifts. Every believer has been gifted. Here's the truth. We have been given so that we can give. The gifts that God has given us, he's given us so that we can give to other people. And there, as we come to, is that it? All right, good. Sometimes I skip over and it messes everything up. Uh, but the gifts that God has given us has been given us to, to give to other people. Now, God never in, intended the church to be confusing. God describes in Scripture, in a sense, who is to oversee the building. Uh, and it's very important to understand who is in charge, right? Anyone that's ever been on a, a, a job site, you understand that there are typically foremen, right? Those that are in charge, and you got the crew, and everyone has a different responsibility. You can't have 15 people in charge. That's just just chaos. Now, you need a lot of people working together, right? But there's typically one person in charge. In a local church, who ultimately is in charge? It's not a trick question. Ultimately, God, yes. Ultimately, God, Jesus Christ, he's in charge because it is his church. Now, under Jesus, who does he place? as the, I guess, key leader of the church. The shepherd, the pastor, the overseer, the bishop, whatever you want to call it, as the scripture makes many references to. Now, in that sense, it's not about one person leading. You do it my way, and if you don't, you're out. Now, we've probably been maybe in a church like that. We've heard of situations like that where, in a sense, it was a literally like a dictatorial type situation to where... Whatever the pastor said, it goes, and you don't have any say. Well, that's wrong. And that's unbiblical. That's not a healthy model. A healthy model is there's a key leader, the pastor, who is generating other leaders to work with him. And then those leaders are generating people to follow him, to follow them. So again, every believer has diverse responsibilities. And, and really this passage here in verses 11 through 16, it's kind of a, a cool thing about like the blueprints of the church. It talks about the leaders in a sense, like a, a construction site. You have the foreman in verse 11. You have the people who do the work. Uh, verse number 12, the crew. Uh, you have the construction model in verse 13, the program, the goal in verses 14 through 16. So as we get to that second point, every believer has diverse responsibilities. So let's dive in for the next few minutes. 
And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. I could spend weeks just explaining these two verses, but I'll try to do it in a quick way. Verse 11. The leaders, this is, this is key, get this down, equip the saints. The leaders equip the saints. Who are the saints? Oh, they're the team from New Orleans. We've talked about this. Come on. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You're right. Christians, children of God. Not, again, I think when I was younger, I was like, oh, that's, that's a dearly beloved saint. I thought it was like a, someone's like you know, 85 years old. Oh, that's a saint. No. As Paul says, if you're a child of God, we are saints. So the leaders equip, teach, instruct, give them the tools necessary. They equip the saints. In verse number 11, we have a couple titles. First of all, we have the apostles and the prophets. Now, these two have a broad range of meaning. In one sense, the apostles and prophets were foundational to the church. Uh, Turn back to chapter 2, verse 20, very, very quickly. Chapter 2, verse number 20. It says, and are built, this is talking about the church, and are built upon the foundation. It's important to have a foundation in the building, isn't it? Very important. Foundation is key. But a foundation alone, is that enough? No. If I just had a foundation for a house, do I have a house? No, I have a foundation, but I still need other things to make it a house. So the, the apostles and the prophets, we have to understand this, are the foundation of the church. Um, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. It also talks about that uh, in chapter 3 and other passages as well. But let's talk about the apostles very, very quickly. The word apostle means one who is sent or commissioned, or you can write this. It means a sent one, a sent one. If you don't want to write it all down, just write a sent one. The word apostle means a sent one. Uh, now, there were certain conditions for biblical apostles. Again, talk for weeks about this, but I don't have time. Uh, certain conditions for biblical apostles. Acts chapter 1 talks about this. First of all, they must have personal contact with Jesus. Personal contact with Jesus. A uh, second thing is this. They must have been witnesses of the resurrection. Uh, It talks about that in Acts chapter 1. I've got those verses. You can go and look at those later if you have time. Another thing is this. They were handpicked by God himself. Now, originally, Jesus had uh, how many uh, apostles originally? Twelve. He had those 12 apostles, and then, you know, Judas left, and then they had cast lots, and I think uh, think it was Matthias, right, That that was called. Now, I read some things this week, and it's just pure speculation, but... You know, some people say since Matthias was never mentioned later, maybe it was never of God. Maybe it was of the people. Again, I'm not, I'm not going there. Uh, maybe, you know, God handpicked uh, Paul, so maybe that was the one it was supposed to be. But regardless of that, we do know that God handpicked the people that he wanted to be as the apostles, and that's very important. And these three requirements reveal that the official office of the apostle of Jesus Christ cannot exist today because if they are handpicked by God, witnesses of the resurrection, is there anyone alive today that witnessed the resurrection? No. No one. So in the biblical sense, the apostles died off when the last of them died, whether it was Paul or John or whoever was the last one that died. Now, in a broader sense, and I'm not trying to get confusing here, but an apostle means a sent one. Now, as a Christian, in a broad sense, I'm not trying to be heretical here, but we are sent, right? We are called out to do the work of God. Now, the apostles were very key, very foundational to the church. Here's why. At that time, they didn't have a written word, did they? 
But today we have a written word. We have a written word that has been canonized for us, which means it's been covered, it's been closed. There is nothing new that should be added to the scriptures, right? Most of the New Testament was written by the apostles. It was given to them to record, to write to us. And again, all kinds of things that we can talk about, passages we can go to. Um, they had supernatural powers. Turn, I, I got I to show this quickly. Turn to Mark chapter 16. Again, there's so much that I like to talk about, but again, it's for another day and the time entirely. Uh, Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. You know, we talk about this as being one of, one of the aspects of the Great Commission, and it is. Uh, but this passage was given to those apostles initially. Uh, I gotta find it. There it is. Uh, Mark chapter 16. Hang on, I gotta find it. Um, let's let's just start in verse number 15. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. This is really referring to those apostles. In my name they shall cast out devils. Has anyone been able to cast out a devil? Don't talk about your wife or your husband or anything like that. Uh, and I have cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. That's another lesson entirely. Uh, I believe tongues were a sign gift given at that time. Um, again, I, I'm going to do a lesson on that in the future, so stay tuned. Um, uh, but they were given for the lost, for those that didn't know uh, or didn't know the truth so that they could hear the truth. Uh, they shall take up serpents. Uh, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. So really some supernatural powers that were given to them by God. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall re recover. So a lot of things happen to them. I mean, just imagine being bitten by a snake and, oh, okay, no big deal. Cast it off. Imagine being able to cast out devils and, and heal the sick. Well, supernatural powers were given to the apostles because God had called them. Uh, we do not, at this church, we do not believe in the apostolic succession as the Catholic Church or other churches believe. Um, God authenticated their ministry with special miracles. Hebrews 2 talks about that. Uh, so we should not demand these same miracles today. Uh, second thing, and I know I'm going quickly on those and I'm skipping a lot, but that's okay. Uh, the prophets. Now we commonly associate a prophet with someone that predicts the future, predicts future events. And a lot of the Old Testament prophets, that's what they did. They, they were uh, future tellers in a sense, warning of impending judgment and doom on, on Israel or, or on, you know, I think of Jonah. Jonah was a prophet and he, and he preached to Nineveh and, and he's warning of, of God's demise if, if they don't get right with God. But a, a prophet also is not just a future teller. Another definition of a prophet is a forth teller, which means one that tells the truth. And again, we have the truth. What is the truth? It's God's word. So on a broad sense, the prophets and the apostles or in a general sense, the prophets and the apostles were the foundation of the church because most of the Old Testament was written by the prophets. The New Testament was written by the apostles. They have died off. We don't have those today. But as a fourth teller, a teller of the truth, in the general broad sense, as a Christian, shouldn't we be one that is telling the truth of Jesus Christ to other people? Again, I'm not saying you're a prophet as in time past, but trying to help you understand what this is talking about. Again, there is no new revelation. God has given us everything that we need. Um, the Bible is very clear, and especially you think of Ephesians. Paul is writing this book to the church at Ephesus, specifically with what they're dealing with. But you know what? The great thing about this, we can make so many applications in our own Christian life today. It might not have been written specifically at that time to us, but the application still applies to us. 
thousands of years later. And that's the awesome thing about the scripture. So there is one meaning, but there are many applications that we can make to the scriptures that God has given us. Now, what we do here at Eagle Drive Baptist Church is we do everything by God's word. I try to validate everything by God's word. And I, one thing I learned in college that God's word is our final authority for faith and practice. And that's one thing I try to apply in all my preaching and teaching, everything that we do. Now, we might do things different than another church does, and that's okay, but everything is based upon God's word, first and foremost. And if it's not based upon God's word, then what are we doing? Everything we need is right here within God's word. Um, so again, they are the foundation. Let's continue on. The next part won't take as long. But the foundation alone is not enough. Then we have three other offices that we're, we're given here. We have the evangelist, pastor, teacher. An evangelist is someone that is a bearer of good news. A bearer of good news. These men traveled from place to place to preach the gospel to the lost. Um, specifically, telling the lost about Jesus Christ. Um, now, God has uniquely gifted specific people with this gift. Now, this is important. You may not be uniquely gifted to be an evangelist, but every Christian still has a responsibility to witness. And so I think Paul says in another passage to do the work of an evangelist, to, to be able to minister, to be able to help, to be able to witness. You might not specifically have that calling in your life, but every Christian should be telling other people about Jesus Christ, right? You should. And if you're not, then you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, what you're called to do. The fact that a believer may not possess this gift does not excuse him or her from being burdened for lost souls and witnessing to them. And if you're not burdened for the lost, then maybe you're not even saved. To think about that. So there must be a burden for the lost. Um, so again, they're these are kind of the foremen of the church, and the evangelists, really, their job is to, to bring people into the church because they've, they've gotten saved and, and they've been evangelized. In, in a broader sense, as, as a pastor, I, I kind of carry these last three functions as an evangelist, as a, a pastor, teacher, because Sunday mornings especially, a lot of the messages are very evangelistic. What I mean is I share the gospel. I present the gospel. I'm witnessing to the people that are listening. I'm also pastoring and shepherding, but I'm also teaching as well. Uh, so we have the evangelists, and then quickly we have pastors and teachers. Pastors and teachers. Pastors mean shepherd. Indicating from the local church is a flock of sheep. And it's his responsibility. Notice I said his, not her. His responsibility to feed and lead the flock. Talks about that in 1 Peter chapter 5. Elder, uh, overseer are the names for pastor. Um, but the pastor does this by means of the word of God, the food that nourishes the sheep. And really one of the primary goals of a pastor, the primary responsibilities of a pastor is to feed the sheep, to equip the sheep. And that's, that's important. And I say this kindly, compassionately, but a lot of times in our churches, even in America, we've gotten the role of a pastor all mixed up. We think it's the pastor's job to do everything. You know what my job is to do? Equip you to do the work as well. This doesn't mean I'm not doing anything. It's not like, all right, do the job. I'm going golfing. It happens every once in a while. But that's not what it's about. It's about I'm equipping you to help in the work. That is a mark of a healthy church. 
It's not one person or two people or three people or however many staff there are doing the work and everyone else is going to sit and enjoy. That's not what it is. The pastor's primary job is to equip the saints, teach, train. Now, I, I have a heavy responsibility, a heavy weight that's on my shoulder because of that. And I, I take things very seriously. Everything that I do, I, I scrutinize myself, every decision that I make, because I know I have to stand and give an account of God of everything that, that I do. And I know there's times where I'm like, man, was I, was I clear enough in helping this person and leading them? But I've also realized that, you know what? It's kind of like they say, you can lead a sheep to water, but you can't make them drink, right? I probably messed that all up, but I think you understand what I'm saying. Just because I give you the tools doesn't mean you're actually going to use them. Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. And we've been in churches, and maybe we've been people like that. That a pastor was trying to equip, but we can care less because it's all about me. I'm going to do what I want to do, and it's, it's his job. It's like I've said before, well, it's not my job. Someone else can do it. It's okay, people, right? It's their job to do it all. That's unbiblical. That's an unbiblical model. When you study the scriptures, the pastor helps shepherd the sheep so that they are in the work with him. So here's a great question. Are we active in the work? Don't answer out loud. But are we active in the work of God? Are we actively working to help the pastor, to come along the pastor, come alongside the pastor, to come alongside other leaders? Pastors are there, and I think we've got this for your notes, are there to nurture, defend, protect, no sacrifice for the flock. We'll leave it up here for just a minute. They're there to nurture, defend, protect, no, and sacrifice for the flock. In turn, the New Testament says that they should be honored and respected. It talks about this in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12 and 13. But in the New Testament, the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, right? He is the ultimate senior pastor. And really, I am just the under shepherd that God has entrusted over this part of his flock to help lead. Now, this is important. The fact that the word some is not repeated here indicates that in this particular passage, many believe that it's one office with two ministries. Now, it's, it's important to understand that in the book of Romans, it talks about there is a gift of teaching. I don't believe that's what it's talking about here. I believe that every pastor should be a teacher. But here's the key. Not every teacher is a pastor, right? Just because you might have the gift of teaching doesn't mean you're a pastor. But every pastor should be a teacher, should teach, encourage, uh, help, instruct the flock. And that's why we use Wednesday nights. It's a teaching time, instructional time helping us dig deep into God's word. Now, many take from this passage the terms as the same office, that of, a, in a sense, a pastor-teacher. Verse number 12, quickly. The saints do the work of the ministry. The saints do the work of the ministry. So verse 11 is all about um, the, the leaders equip the saints. Verse 12, the saints do the work of the ministry. Look what it says in verse number 12. For the perfecting, maturing, growing of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Get this down. Church leaders prepare, complete, train, and equip God's people for ministry. 
Church leaders prepare, complete, train, and equip God's people for ministry. In most churches, most people that I've, I've been witness of, and it's not always the case, and I'm not saying that tonight, and I'm not trying to get on a soapbox here, but I've seen a lot of times where most people are merely spectators while the pastor is working because they expect him to do everything. Again, we pay him. We give him a good salary. He needs to go out and do everything we ask him to do. You know, I've had people leave the church, and growing up in a pastor's home, I've heard it first and foremost from my dad. You know, most people have high expectations from their pastor. That, that, whatever, that's fine, whatever. But a lot of times, their expectations are not even biblical. And what I mean by that is they are demanding things of their pastor that are not even a biblical office of the pastor. Basically, they want them to cater for every need. And I've had people, since I've been here, get upset with me when I didn't cater to what they wanted me to do. And I'm not trying to get on a high horse here, but that's not my primary role, to do exactly what you want me to do. That's different with my wife, so let's ignore that. But it's not, well, I expect the pastor to do this. I expect him to be at my house every other Tuesday, raking my yard. Honestly, I've heard things like that. And I've had people go off on me for, well, you weren't at the hospital long enough. You were only there for about five minutes, and I don't appreciate that. You should have been there all day. I'm sorry. It's not that I didn't want to be there, but I have other responsibilities to try to help everyone and help lead the church. But that's why I have staff that can help me, and that's why they are trying to equip other people to do the work of the ministry. So again, it's not, honestly, and with that, I, I would love to be at every, every hospital, every home. I would love to, and, and I try to do as much as I can. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying I'm just locked up in my office and doing nothing. I would love to do that, but I can't, and that's not biblical. It's biblical for me to equip people, train people, encourage people to do that so they can help me. I mean, imagine if we were a church of 500, do you think I could visit every single person? If 45 people were in the hospital at the same time, at 14 different hospitals? But people expect that. He wasn't there. I'm never going back to that church. He doesn't love me. That's unbiblical. That's not a healthy model. So the question, I guess, is what are we doing? Are we active in the ministry? And that's what it says in verse 12. Please get this, and I'm not taking anything out of context here. For the perfecting of the saints. Why did God give some apostles and and prophets and and evangelists and pastors and teachers? Why, Why did he give them? Verse 12 is the answer. For the perfecting of the saints, for the maturing of the saints, for the what? What's that next word? Work. Well, I already work a job. That, 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 that's good, and I'm not trying to take anything away. But our primary job, is our primary job to make sure we have money in the bank? Or is our primary job to make sure God's kingdom is advanced? God's kingdom is advanced. That's why we are placed here on this earth. And I think sometimes we get it all wrong. Sometimes we get it all confused. I've, and I'm not saying that don't work, don't, don't do a job. You, you need money and, and you know, to clothes and, and food and shelter and raiment, all that kind of stuff. That's important. But one of our primary responsibilities is to make sure that we are involved in the work. And many of you, and I am thankful for this, it's a different church four years later than it was four years ago. Many of you are so actively involved for that. Thank you. I mean, I am so grateful for that. I am so grateful for that. 
with people right now that are serving, people, some that are sitting in here are serving in other areas of ministry. I'm so thankful for that because I can't do it alone. I have no desire to do it alone. But again, I've seen most churches where people are the spectators while the pastor is working. But in a biblical New Testament model, we are all ministers. We are all participants. We are all specialists that have been given a unique gift from God to do his work. Church health, and I'm almost done, is sustained and expanded when the members of the church are actually functioning as biblical members. <laughs> Again, I, I wish I could be at every bedside and every hospital, but I, I wish I could do that. But you know, if I did that all the time, I would ruin my marriage. And I would be out of the ministry. If I was catering all of the time to every need you ever had, and I'm not trying to be critical here, but if I was catering to every need that you had, how would I have time for my own family? And how would I have time to properly lead the church? So again, it's the leader's job to equip the saints for the work. And those that are working, man, thank you. God bless you. Thank you so much. Again, my job is to help unlock your unique gifts and utilize your potential for God so that you can help grow his church and make it go forward. Get this down. We're almost done. The church is to have an every member ministry. If you're a member of the body of Christ in this church, you should be involved in ministry in some facet, in some form. The pastor works and the people work. It's not one or the other. And a great question again as we ask, what are you doing with what God has given you? We're all one in Christ, but we're still unique. That's okay. The mark of a healthy church is a gospel-centered unity. But it must move from understanding and activation of our spiritual diversity. And these last couple truths, and we're done. Every member, I like this. I read this today in one of my commentaries. Every member should grow up to wear a towel and not wear a bib. <laughs> Every member should grow up to wear a towel and not wear a bib. Meaning you're serving and not being served. Every member should not be immature consumers, but eager servants. Every member should be an eager servant, not an immature consumer. Unity flows from our diversity. So the question is, what are we doing with what God has given us? Are we trying to just consume everything? Are we eagerly serving God in any area that we can? Have we truly activated the gifts that God has given us? And again, I think we are, we are on the, the road to a healthy church. And I'm not saying this in a critical way, but we are still far from it. Because we have to get rid of our pride, get rid of our control issues that all of us, myself included, have, and learn to submit and learn that we are all important. All of us. The ones back there, the ones that aren't here tonight, all of us are important. Oh, I, can't, I can't do certain things. That's fine. Figure out what you can do. That's, that's why I, I put a lot of responsibility on myself to try to, am I truly helping equip the people of helping them understand what they're supposed to be doing? That's why, that's why we've done the service structure that we've done. Sunday mornings is unique service. Sunday nights is discipleship, and we're going to improve upon that in the new year. We've got some goals and excited about that. Wednesday night is that Bible study. That I'm, I'm trying to give avenues, and we're trying to give more avenues in the future to really are we equipping the people? 
to be actively involved. And, and honestly, I was thinking about this. You know, Carrie did so much in our church. He talked about being stretched all the time, and he was. And, and no one can replace him. He's unique. But you're unique, too. God has gifted you. You have your own fingerprint from God. And when you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, we all suffer. And church suffers.